Good morning again. Our scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the banks of the Nile and meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they shall serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his, ser- in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the reading of the Lord's word. May be blessed. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are with your word, another Lord's day, and an opportunity for you to speak to us. And so we want in this moment to come with a sense of sacredness and preparedness And say, Lord, would you speak? Would you use your word to do what it does better than anything else in the world? And that is to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, Lord, today, as we look at Pharaoh and the plagues, would you help us to see not just a story, not just an account of what you've done, but would you help us to even see ourselves and then to run to Christ for mercy and help. Help us, Lord. We need you, and we're here to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime this spring we'll come to what is probably one of the most familiar passages in all of the book of Exodus, maybe even all of the Bible, and that is Exodus chapter 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments. My guess is that uh, many of us know what the first commandment is, and it is in Exodus chapter 20, this particular command, that I am the Lord your God, 
brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. But it's first not just in its order. It's also first in priority. Meaning that when God gives this command to have no other gods, He means that He has no rivals. Nobody can match Him. No one is equal to Him. No one is like Him. And as God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, they they hear about the greatness and the glory of God, of His exclusive right to be called God. But it's the passage that's even before that that informs the first commandment. I quoted it. It goes like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So God's exclusive claim to His people is not just that He's delivered them. It's not just that He is their God and He's rescued them. It is that they have seen what God did to Egypt. They have seen what God did to Pharaoh and the hosts, drowning them in the Red Sea. They have seen what God has done with the so-called gods of the Egyptians. So when they hear, you shall have no other gods before me because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, it has stunning implications beyond just God's worth. It relates... The fact that God is God and there are no other gods. Today we're going to dial into this notion of no other gods and how it relates to the plagues and then how it relates to our own lives in regards to the matter of idolatry. Our theme right now is this matter of the God who delivers. In particular, last week we introduced this idea of the God who delivers through judgment We've been looking at Exodus, and in chapters 1 to 6, we saw that God is a God who hears. He, he heard the groaning of His people, He heard their misery, and He acted. So He has now been moved and is pleased to act. Chapters 7 through 12 are about a God who delivers, but the way in which He delivers is very important. God not only rescues His people, but He rescues them through judgment. And central to that judgment is the ten plagues. This morning we're going to look at the first four of them. And what we're going to find is that God is not just delivering His people. He's not just rescuing them from bondage. He is making a statement. And He makes His statement through the ten plagues. These plagues are connected to Egypt's sense of identity. Their, their understanding of their, natu- of their national success was connected to the natural resources with which they had been blessed. And so when the ten plagues come, they, they target various gods within the Egyptian worldview. You see, the, the Egyptians, like many cultures, were polytheistic. And in order to explain their world in which they lived, they believed that there were gods who were controlling the lives that they were experiencing. So think back of your middle school days when you studied Greek mythology. Remember those days? And you learned about this crazy world of the immortals and the mortals. And they had these battles and these wars. And the gods were incredibly self-centered. And they, they thrived on, on people worshiping them. They got more and more strength and energy. And so that was the Greeks' attempt to explain their world. Well, the Egyptians did the same thing. And so whether it was um, the natural phenomenon or the Nile or fertility that they saw with their their, their livestock or with the, the natural world, they attached gods to those things that they struggled to explain. And what the ten plagues do is they attack this notion of the Egyptian worldview. So God is not only aiming to deliver his people, 
he aims also to communicate to the Egyptians and to the whole world that he is God and there is no other. So today let's look at these first four plagues and then see what we can learn about our own selves. The first plague is the plague of the Nile. The Nile, more than anything else, defined Egyptian life. And so it makes sense that this first plague would attack the very heart of the Egyptian sense of security. Everything around Egypt circled around the Nile. Its water flow provided um, sustenance to people, to livestock, and as well, the Nile, when it flooded on a regular basis, as it overflowed its banks, it would take all sorts of rich soil and deposit it on either side of the bank, and that then became the farmlands that the people could farm their crops. If the Nile didn't flood, the people starved. As a result of this flooding and how important it was, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile or worshipped a god whose name was Happy, H-A-P-I. And there's even some evidence that they called the Nile by that very god name, the name Happy. Uh, The god had a particular uh, figure. If you were to go and look up, you could find a kind of a hieroglyphics picture of the god Happy. He was known for the inundation, meaning the flood. And so even in his picture, he he looks like he's inundated. In other words, and this is going to be a little convicting, um, he he looks like a, a man with a... A, a pot belly. Okay, you can go look at all the other gods are nice and thin and trim, but no, Happy, he's got a little, you know, girth that he needs to lose, right? And so, he, and, and the reason he looks like that is because Happy was known as the god of inundation, and so he's a little, you know, he's a little inundated, right? So you can go home and tell your husband or your friend, hey man, you got a little Nile thing going on there. So, all right. So, Happy as a god was known to be a caring god because in the flowing of the river of the Nile, it provided for uh, the Egyptian people. He was associated with life, with fertility, with water. And um, the Nile, in terms of its flooding, was rather predictable. And therefore, even the calendar of the country of Egypt was based upon the ebb and flow of the flooding of the Nile. We also need to remember that in Exodus chapter 1, the Nile has significance because it was the Nile that Pharaoh instructed people to throw um, Hebrew male babies into when in the midst of their commitment to try and kill as many male babies as possible, Herod, or Herod, Pharaoh, 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 there we go, got this, Pharaoh said, take these male babies and throw them into the, the Nile River. And so there's a sense of retribution where God is paying them back. And as well, think of Moses who comes out of the Nile. Just think of the symbolism connected with that. Here is this this central God in Egyptian life, and the first plague is going to hit at the very heart of what the Egyptians believe to be their security and their support. Our text begins in verse 14, chapter 7, identifying the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So God then sends Moses, sends him in the morning to go out to the river, to the waters of the Nile. So the the first of the three sets of these plagues, they're, they're organized in three different sets. The first one always has Moses meeting Pharaoh at the Nile, at the river. Verse 17, or verse 16 rather, here's a familiar warning. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. This helps sets the context that essentially what's going on here is a contest between 
God of the Hebrews, the I am, the creator of the universe, and Pharaoh, and God has said, let my people go, and Pharaoh has said, no, I won't do it. And so there is a, a clash of wills. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, that's the theme. You will know that I am the Lord. So this book isn't about Israel. It's not about Egypt. It's not about plagues. It's not about Moses. It's about God, that the world may know that I am the Lord, that you may know, Pharaoh, that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, this is Moses speaking, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So what's going to happen here is that God is going to strike the Nile, and for seven days it's going to cease giving its life, its sustenance, its support to the people of Egypt. There is going to be a clear statement that God controls your most central defining reality. So verse 20 indicates that while Moses was in the presence of Pharaoh and his servants, he took his staff, he struck the water, and it turned into blood. What does this mean? Well, some people think that it turned into literal blood, and that very well could be. Another explanation is that the phrase blood or the term blood is used instead not to describe physical blood, but in terms of something that happened to the Nile such that it looked like blood and it becomes a figure of speech for judgment. And frequently the Bible uses blood as a metaphor for significant judgment. For instance, Joel 2.31 says that the day of the Lord will come and the moon shall be turned to blood. Or Revelation 6, referring to that same moment, verse 12, says that the moon became like blood. So the idea is something happened to the Nile, that it either was blood or it looked like blood, and that the indication is that because of this sign that judgment has come, whether it's blood or not, regardless, the point is, is that judgment has come. In fact, more important than actually what happened to the Nile is this fact. It's the fact that God controls the coming of these plagues and the ending of them. Regardless of, of what comes, the, the beginning and the end of these plagues are controlled by God. Because there's so many other natural elements um, throughout the plagues, I think this is probably a description of a, of a natural phenomenon that Moses was able to control. There were some times in the midst of a flood season that so much red sed- sediment of soil would get into the, the water of the Nile that it would turn a bloody hue. And because of that flooding with all of the bacteria that would come and that came along with that, the oxygen levels in the, in the river would, would become unstable. And as a result, everything in the river at a particular point would, would die. And it seems that that's what perhaps happened here. The point, though, is that Moses, in Pharaoh's presence, turns this plague on. He hits the staff in the water, and immediately the Nile turns into this, this, this blood-like substance. Verse 22 tells us that Pharaoh's magicians were able to reproduce the sign by their secret arts, and the result was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We see once again, verse 22, what we've seen it so often, the text says this, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. He was dismissive, didn't care, walked away. Who is this God that I should obey him? And as a result, if you read on, in order for people to survive, they had to dig for groundwater around the Nile. So it was the Nile River, its tributaries, its uh, pools, even river water that was collected in, in wood and in stone pots 
was contaminated. And the point is this, that everything that you think about the Nile has now been compromised. It no longer gives you life. It no longer gives you support. And the result is that there's been a clear message sent. God has begun the deliverance of these people. You worship water, I'm going to judge you by water. And by the way, this becomes a major theme later on in the book of Exodus. Because after all, what happened to Pharaoh and his army? Without giving the whole story away, they drive into the middle of the Red Sea and God destroys them, kills them by virtue of water. Water is a symbol of judgment in the Bible, which is why the book of Revelation says, and there was no more sea. See? So this idea of God now coming after their central God is an important part of what the plagues are all about. Deliverance through judgment of the ten plagues has indeed begun. That's plague number one. Plague number two is the plague of frogs. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Here's the second plague. It was meant to build on the other. And God issues another warning here to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. Okay, so what's the big deal with frogs? Well, frogs are known to multiply and multiply quickly, right? As a result, the people of Egypt associated the frog and its symbol with fertility. In fact, they had a goddess that they attributed fertility to. Her name was Hecate. And she was viewed as the the goddess who controlled fertility, especially um, she was known to give women help in childbirth. Interestingly enough, women would wear amulets of Hecate, and her priestesses were trained in the skills of being a midwife. Now, if you could think back to Exodus chapter 1, and who was it that Pharaoh first went to and said, kill the Egyptian children, it was midwives. And some commentators think this is yet another example of God making a point in terms of not only the Nile, you'll throw babies into the Nile. Well, see what happens to your Nile. You'll ask midwives to kill babies. Here, here's what happens to, to your um, goddess of midwife, wifery, so to speak. As well, she was known in sort of this Egyptian mythology to be the, the wife of the god Kenem, who was considered the lord of all created things. So this is like the, the wife of the ultimate creator God who is supposed to create order out of chaos. And what you're going to see is that God keeps bringing chaos after chaos after chaos after chaos upon these people. And whether or not the plagues are directed at a specific God or not, the point is this. God of the Hebrews controls the created order. Your gods are nothing. In fact, your gods are turning against you. So what God does is he takes the symbol of fertility, this frog, and God is going to make the Egyptians despise fertile frogs. (laughs) The wording of Exodus 8 is meant to highlight this. Here comes God's attack of the annoying frogs. Chapter 8, verse 3, The Nile will swarm with frogs, that shall come up into your house. And notice how specific the wording is. It's, it's, I mean, read your Bible with this, a little bit of an imagination to realize we, we have this level of description for a reason. The Bible could have just said, frogs will be everywhere. But, but notice the specificity. It's meant to bring you into the experience. Swarm with frogs that will come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. 
Okay? So you're laying there. I mean, get the feel of this. You don't need a child storybook. Just feel this and you got frogs. Oh, frogs, you know? It's not a nightmare. This is your life, right? Here they are. And into the house of your servants and your people. And then notice this. You like to bake? You got frogs in your bread and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Just when you're making pancakes, you're like, ah, frog legs. No. You're like, what happened? Get these out of here. Frogs shall come upon you and your people and all your servants. These frogs, these frogs are everywhere. Sounds like a great kid's book, doesn't it? Frogs, frogs everywhere. At Moses and Aaron's command, this army of frogs covered the land of Egypt. Chapter 8, verse 7 tells us. And then even Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate the plague. This is the last plague that they'll be able to replicate. And the thing is, is they can turn to get the frogs moving, but they can't make it stop. So they can start the plague, so to speak. They can replicate it, but they can't turn it off. And again, the point of the plagues is not just the physical phenomenon, because they they had locusts that came through before. The point is, is the God of the Hebrews has locusts and flies and gnats and the Nile and frogs at his disposal. And he can send them and he can take them away at his command. In fact, we see this really clearly uh, in this text. We see that um, verse 9, look at chapter 8, verse 9. This is, actually I read this and I just, I chuckled. This is really, I think, kind of a funny text. So, so Pharaoh, verse 8, calls Moses and says, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. He headed up to his eyelids with frogs. He was tired of them. And Moses said to Pharaoh, verse 9, okay, read this carefully. He says, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses. So what was he saying? Pharaoh says, Come and plead with me to God. Moses says, Tell me when you want the frogs to stop. That's what he's saying. Tell me when you want the frogs to stop. The point is, is that I turn the frogs on you and I can make them stop. God controls the frogs. And then here's, here's what Pharaoh said. Look at it. Look at the next verse. Tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow? Why tomorrow? I don't know why. It just struck me as funny. Tomorrow? How about right now, right? But no, tomorrow. I imagine Farrah went to bed last night and she's, his wife's like, what did you say to him? I said, tomorrow. Tomorrow? Why not right now, right? Anyways, I just thought that was funny. So in verse 10, tomorrow, and said, Moses says, be it as you say, so the Lord, um, that you may know that there is no uh, one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your people, verse 11, and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And so this is exactly what Moses does. He prays and he asks for God to remove the frogs. Verse 12. Verse 13 and 14 tells us what transpires. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Did you love that word? Stank. <laughs> stinks, right? It's just, hey, the land stank. And you know what? That's a great word because you better believe it stank. Oh man, did it stink or stink or stank or whatever it sunk right so it was all it was awful in fact that was, i was when i was reading this i was thinking of this um there's a lady in my uh, last church who bought this really cute farmhouse she was all excited about it told me that she had purchased this new home and um it was interesting just to kind of watch the development of her home experience because she came back a couple weeks later and said hey how's your new home working out she said oh it's not good 
I'm like, what? What's the problem? She's like, well, I'm laying in bed, and, and I hear like all this scratching in the walls. Yeah, you know, I said, what's coming? And it's all it's scratching in the walls, and it sounds like there's like a super highway of mice in the ceiling. And so I, I said, oh, my goodness. She said, yes, yeah, so I called an exterminator. They've come out, and they put baits out to try and, and kill all the mice. So next week she come back, and I'd say, hey, how's your... um." How's your mouse house, you know, coming? And she said, no, it's just, it's been crazy. The, the exterminator put out bait, and he couldn't believe it. All the bait was gone in like, like two days. And he said, do you know how much bait this is? Which means, do you know how many mice are in your house? You know, and then they put out more bait and more bait, and finally they found the threshold that the, the bait wasn't fully consumed, and so they had sufficiently poisoned all of the mice. Well, that solved one problem. The next week she came to church, I said, hey, how's your mouse house coming? She goes, oh, we can't even live there right now. And I said, why? She said, because those hundreds of mice, they all died everywhere, in the house, in the walls, and the smell, it was just overwhelming. I remember as an elementary kid coming into a classroom one day, we had one of those, those blower vents, you know, each room kind of had its own heating unit. I remember walking in just going, whoa, what is that? And, you know, we had to cancel our class in our classroom because of one mouse. Now, granted, he was in the heating element, so it was a little cooked, right? So, but the whole room just smelled. Can you imagine how horrible this smelled? So the whole land stank, and it's God who is in control of these army of frogs. Once Pharaoh had found some level of relief, he got the frog pressure off of him. He changes his mind again. Look at verse 15. I've got it here for us on the screen. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Note this. This often happens. Pressure's on. Little things begin to change that go better. The Oh, I begin to harden my heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh becomes a, a bit of a type, if you will, of how human beings often respond when God brings discipline or consequences on them. And then things just start to get a little bit better. They're quick to revert back to the old patterns because they just wanted the pressure off in the first place. They didn't really want to fully obey, just wanted their circumstances to change. Yet Pharaoh was not willing to obey the God of the Hebrews. So we have the Nile, plague number one. Frogs, plague number two. Here's the third one, the gnats. Third plague comes without warning. Always the third plague in the sets come without warning. This will be also the case of... Um, other plagues uh, to follow, plagues that will, will come without any kind of um, warning on um, Moses' part. Now, this particular plague doesn't target a specific Egyptian god, but what it does target is this notion in the Egyptian worldview that the natural elements are balanced, and therefore everything is controlled, and chaos turns to order. Well, the god of the Hebrews keeps bringing chaos upon chaos upon chaos upon chaos, on this nation and to show them that God can start and stop disasters at his will. Look at uh, chapter 8 and verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, that word gnat in Hebrew, it can mean um, gnats, it can mean mosquitoes, uh, it can mean lice. Okay, so when you think of those three terms, does it really matter, right? So, I mean, I don't care. You give me gnats, you give me mosquitoes, you give me lice. Some of your art started scratching. I just saw you started scratching. It'd be regardless, they're annoying, right? So I remember um, 
you might think, well, what, what can what can gnats do and what can mosquitoes do? I, they can they can really make life miserable, right? I mean, just one mosquito in your room, right? I and mean, that's just enough to drive you crazy. Let alone if they start to swarm. We went hiking one time when our boys were little, when we put them in backpacks up in northern Michigan. Uh, going to go see the Tuguamanan Falls in the northern UP, and we thought we'll hike four or five miles, no big deal. We got ten minutes in, we had to turn around because the mosquitoes, even though we had sprayed everything down, they were just, they were driving us crazy. They, they were biting through the, the repellent, getting our ears, our eyes, our nose. I mean, the, the gnats are intended here to be incredibly annoying. And so whether it's gnats or mosquitoes or lice, you pick whatever you want. The reality is, the point is the same. This is really miserable living. Look at verse 17. They did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. He struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All of the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. And then here's the change, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So here's the change. No longer are the magicians able to produce these plagues. So the magician said to Pharaoh, here is another warning sign to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So Pharaoh hears from his own magicians that this is the finger of God. This is God's doing. And yet, verse 32, here's what Pharaoh did again. He hardens his own heart. And that leads us then to the final plague, and that is the plague of the flies. This is the second cycle of plagues. The first three um, are past, and now we go back into the second set of three. And once again, we see that Moses is presenting himself to Pharaoh again at the river, and he gives him a warning in verses 21 and 22. Look at it. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else... If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians will be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. In other words, you're going to have flies above, flies below. It's all going to be flies. They're going to ruin the land. But then here's a change, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So he's going to do a line of demarcation between Egypt and between the Israelites. Verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. So there's a distinction now between God's people and the people of Egypt. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, he does what people often do. They try and appease God by half-hearted obedience. Just, just do enough to get the pressure off. Verse 25, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go and sacrifice to your God within the land. Go ahead and sacrifice, just don't leave Egypt. But Moses says that they can't do that. It would be an abomination To the Egyptians, verse 27, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And then Pharaoh says, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. So you can see he keeps trying to to pull back full obedience. Moses then said, verse 29, behold, 
I mean, going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again. That's an important phrase. Don't cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice. So Moses, verse 30, went out from Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us once again. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So you see the pattern over and over and over and over. We have this pattern. God warns him, let my people go. Pharaoh, in some cases, just says, absolutely not. In other cases, says, well, maybe a little bit. And then immediately when the pressure is removed, Pharaoh reverts to the old patterns. And despite the Nile becoming putrid, the land smelling like dead frogs, annoying gnats everywhere and flies that selectively ruined the land of Egypt while sparing Israel, Pharaoh's heart was still hard. Why? Because, at the end of the day, Pharaoh wanted to be his own god. And therefore, believed that these other gods would eventually deliver him. Believed that he really didn't have to obey the creator of the universe. And so instead, Pharaoh is content to cast his lot with the gods of Egypt. These gods that he thinks are going to deliver him. So, How does this relate to Exodus 20 and this idea of no gods before me? Here's how it relates. The lesson that God wants to teach Egypt, Pharaoh, Israel, and us in this text, the lesson is the same. He wants all of us to know that he is the Lord and there is no other. There's a lot of ways that God could have delivered Israel. But he chose to do it in this gradual stage by attacking the very gods of Egypt that gave them security, that meant them, that that made them feel as though they were a a major superpower that, that defined their existence. And God used these plagues to not only pull his people out of Egypt, but also to make a definitive statement to the world that these little gods, so called gods, are nothing. I am the one true God. Even though these gods gave the Egyptians a sense of security, even though it explained their world, even though it made them feel as though they were mighty, God takes these gods out and says, I am the Lord your God, rescued you out of the land of Egypt, you shall have no other gods before me. He's the God of the universe. He has no rivals. He must be obeyed because He is God. He is full of love and full of mercy, full of grace and full of redemption, but He is full of these exclusively. Nobody has these in their possession like God does in any attempt to get these things, security and sense of fulfillment, a sense of identity, any attempt to get one's identity from things other than God is not only foolish, it is dangerous because of who and what God is. So this issue of idolatry or false gods is not just a problem relegated to the ancient Near East and the Egyptians. We also have to deal with our own false gods. False gods become self-destructive. In fact, there's a great passage in Psalm 115. I want to show you this. It, It just captures the essence of what we're talking about. It says this, Our God is in the heavens. 
He does all that He pleases, meaning He's supreme. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Look at the description. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, they're dead. It's silly. Why are you worshiping them? And the conclusion of the psalmist is this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, friends, this is the warning of idolatry. This is the warning of what happens, is that the things that we would take our security from other than God, those things turn on us. They become self-destructive. The things that we create in order to control our lives, because the Egyptian gods were just a way for them to control their own lives that made them feel as though, I don't have to listen to the God of the Hebrews. Are you kidding me? We are Nile people. Look at our Nile. Look at what we do. Look how blessed we are. I don't have to obey some God of the Hebrews. And then God comes in and says, you think your God is something? Watch this. And he takes that God, that idol, that counterfeit God, and he turns it on them. And this is what happened to Egypt, and this is what will happen to any of us when we pursue counterfeit gods. I see it all the time. You may not think of yourself as as an idolater or an idol worshiper, but that may be because your definition of, of idolatry is too narrow. Tim Keller has written a great book called Counterfeit Gods. Here's what he says about idolatry. He helps to expand our definition. He says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. He says, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. I, I, I have that, and or rather, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. He says there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What I want you to see when you read the book of Exodus and you see the plagues, when you see how... Pharaoh conducts himself and you see the challenge of him letting the people go. You might think, well, why didn't he just let the people go? There's a lot of reasons why. But you know one of the main reasons why? It's because he is not convinced that the God of Hebrews should really be obeyed in contrast to what the Israelites as slaves and the gods of the Egyptians give him. See, the fundamental issue in play with idolatry, regardless of its object, is whether this thing that we love, that we trust and obey, is really truly worthy of that level of affection. And the Bible says that there is nothing that is worthy of your love, your trust and obedience more than God. But here's what happens. The good things in life can become God things in life. So, God's given you a brilliant mind, and you've done some great work for your company, and bro, you are climbing the the corporate ladder, or ma'am, 
you're just nailing it in terms of people looking at your work and saying you're 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 doing it and you get affirmation and a sense of accomplishment and the more you do and the more you produce and the harder you work the more praise you get the more money you get the more acclamation you get you get more and more and more and more and if you climb that ladder too hard too fast and that becomes your identity all of a sudden you look at and your kids don't know you your spouse feels abandoned and you look around and you don't have Hardly any friends and relationships. And what's happened is this career thing has turned against you and it's eaten you from the inside out. That's what happens. Our gods turn on us. You want to save face? Want people to think well of you? At one level, you should have a good reputation. On another hand, if that becomes too important, suddenly it will consume you and make you do really foolish and silly things. You go to pick up your kids in a few minutes, maybe from the nursery, and the nursery worker says, um, can we talk a minute? Yeah, your, your son, he, um, he, he bit somebody in the nursery, and immediately what goes on in your heart, <gasps> what do they think of me? I must not be the perfect parent. And immediately your heart goes to things like, well, what did the kid do to deserve that? Right? Or, or and, and what kind of environment do you have here that kids can bite one another without being supervised? And what kind of policies does this church have about biting? And da, 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 right? So suddenly you're writing emails about biting policies and things of that sort. And the real issue underneath it is not biting or nursery. The real issue is the fact that suddenly you lost face, and that is an idol of the heart. And suddenly now you start doing all sorts of crazy things because this idol of what people think of you is consuming you. You want to be an attractive person, so you do all sorts of things, spend all kinds of money, you, you work out relentlessly, you watch so carefully what you eat, you're so concerned about what people think, you put things on in the morning because you want people to notice you and things of that sort. And while there's nothing wrong with beauty and attractiveness, the fact is it can become a wicked, nasty idol and control you and consume you. Listen, friends, whether it's sex or money or power or authority, good gifts, good things can become God things where we suddenly want control of our own lives. And friends, this is nothing different than what's going on in Israel or rather in Egypt as God is pulling Israel out. The lesson here of the ten plagues is the fact that there is a God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of all fathers, the God of all gods, the God who sends His Son, Jesus Christ. And this God is worthy of your affection. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your obedience. And He's in a class beyond compare. See, the beautiful thing is what God does with idols is that when a person understands that God is the most lovely and glorious thing in all of the universe, and when you've come to faith in Christ and you put your hope in Him because you've realized that all these other things are empty pursuits apart from Him, suddenly you, you, you get a glimpse of the fact that to be gloriously and eternally in love with the creator of the universe is a holy addiction and god is the one thing in all of the universe that you can be gloriously addicted to and have it not only not be sinful it's absolutely righteous and for your good and the offering of the new testament is that jesus can come and fix the idol factory of your heart that relentless pursuit, whether it's a relationship, oh, you just want to be loved by somebody else, you just want to be affirmed by somebody else, you do anything to get that relationship, even get involved in really bad scenarios. And some of you may look back and go, why in the world was I involved in such bad relationships? You know why? Because you are trying to fill a God-sized gap in your heart with people instead of Christ. And that leverage to try and gain control of your life is just like Pharaoh 
who says, I'm not going to obey the God of the Hebrews. I'm going to do what I want, and I've got my gods to protect me. And the lesson of Exodus chapter 7 and 8 is that God gloriously delivers his people by destroying idols. And so what does that mean for you? It means he will gloriously deliver you through the death of his son as he destroys anything else that gives you identity apart from him. Keller says this, The living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. That's a God worth serving. That if you find him, you find life. And even when you fail, you still find forgiveness because you've come to know his son. There is no other gods before him because nobody is worthy of your love, obedience, and trust. Let's pray. Father, help us as we think of the ways and places that our hearts could go. We're so busy all the time filling our hearts with so many different idols. Even good things can become God things. If we just... We're weary of that today. And thank you for the lesson in Exodus about your ability to deliver through judging idols. And today I pray that you'd find a group of people today who would acknowledge that finding security and love and obedience and trust in anything apart from you is a fool's errand. Lord, that today you'd create within us new affections, new desires. Some people who, Lord, even after the service this morning, may just need to have someone pray over them that you would increase their appetite for you. And then, Lord, that today there's got to be a few folks here who have pursued so many false gods, and they're empty, they're broken, and honestly, Lord, they've got to be just really tired. And I pray that today they would find the yoke of Christ to be easy and his burden to be light as they come in faith today, turn from their sin and come to Christ so that you, Jesus, might fill a broken, wounded heart and make it whole like it's never been before. So thank you that there are no other gods before you and there's no one like you. We love you, God, for being this kind of Savior to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, afterwards, there'll be some folks up here who would just love to pray for you if there's something going on. So please come up here, have some prayer with some folks before you leave if that's what's needed, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.